Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, and this is a really super special episode. Joined by Steve Mascord, who will be no stranger to anybody who's listened to our series. I'd say Steve might be mentioned more than any other journalist in in my compilation of well over a million words of research notes. Now, I'd, I'd say a conservative estimate, Steve, you probably account for about a hundred thousand of those. So you you were definitely in the in the in the trenches on the front line during the war. And uh, perhaps for that reason, you've written the, the new book, Two Tribes, which, again, I, I don't think this is going to be news to any of our listeners, but I'm really happy to have the chance to to talk through it all with you. So thanks so much for joining me, Steve. No worries, Michael. It's interesting you say that because I don't think my name appears once in my Coleman's book, or it might appear just once. And and I don't feel like I felt like I was on the periphery of that period rather than being in the trenches at the time. Um, so maybe I, if that's the case, maybe I just kind of at the time when I was doing my job every day, I had more of an eye on the future and context than other people. And maybe that's why my name's popped up um, um, in, in your research more than other people. Cause I don't certainly don't think I was someone who was out there necessarily breaking the biggest yarns every day you know, news had a bit of an, you know, they had a bit of an in, obviously, and then there were other journalists like Alex Mitchell at Fairfax who were getting fed stuff as well. Um, and so I was more just trying not to lose each day rather than trying to be the superstar of covering the Super League war. But, um, yeah, it's interesting you say that. And obviously, um, you know, it goes without saying that I'm a you know, big fan of your um, uh, show and series and um, and you pretty much um, have a direct line to everybody who's interested in this subject matter. So, uh, this is uh, important. Yeah, uh, well, ho- from hopefully we can as well. connect any of your fans that don't know us and any of our fans that, that don't know you. But I dare say uh, there's not many of those on, on either front. So, yeah, as I said, really looking forward to getting into it. I, I want to start with talking about uh, you've done something really interesting with, like, I guess, promoting the book and, and planning for the book over the last 18 months ago with the Substack. You're releasing these daily posts. And it was really cool last year at various stages we were kind of running in lockstep so we'd release one of our episodes at the same time that you were talking about the the same thing and and that was kind of really cool anytime our our paths did cross um I, i i got a big kick out of that but can you like give a little insight to how you devised the the substack and how you went about getting this book off the ground Um, well, the first book I did, Touchstones, I just did a crowdfunding thing and actually it started on New Year's Day here in Ireland. Um, you know, I just went, I just woke up on New Year's Day, whatever it was, 2000, 
15 or 16 <laughs> and uh and and said i'm going to do oh it's time i did this book and touchstones and so i launched a crowdfunding and it's just basically the learning out of that you know i, I learned that people want substance you know if they're gonna if, well let me put it this way if you're gonna support something um you know and you just want to give money to your friend that's one thing but you're not going to get as many people as if you uh although maybe you do i don't know but anyway i thought that i want to give people some some value and also I was still writing the book at the time so it actually allowed me to kind of uh, um, dispense with that kind of write, writer's impatience where you you you, you do like an instant uh, hit of uh, feedback whenever you do something and books are very lonely so um, I thought it was a good opportunity to kind of already to, to, to get some feedback from people while I was still writing the book. So um, it's been it's been good. It's a, I think the whole project is a slow burn. I think there's still people signing up for the Substack, um, you know, 14 months later, um, and it finishes on December um, 19 this year. Um, and equally with the book, um, I, I, I'd like to think your average person who uh, watches Friday Night Football and doesn't think about rugby league most of the week has no idea the book exists, and that's exactly as I want it to be because I, I'd like to think that by the end of this year and the 25th an, um, anniversary of the NRL's foundation that um, I will be able to sort of break into the mainstream a little bit with it, and I want it to be a, a slow burn. Um, so, yeah, Substack's been great. It's a lot of work. It's um, But for me, not having, a, you know, living in London, not having a workplace to go to. Um, it gives me some routine. It's the first thing I do each day. Uh, and if I miss a day, then I have to do, I have to catch up. I have to do two. I still haven't done December 31, 1996. Um, so, um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's been a really and positive for Anyone who's experience. not signed up, incredible value for money. For, for the price of just a book, you get all these extra posts. And, you, like, it's... It's it's really extraordinary how much you get for what you'd pay for just the book anyway. So uh, it's a really cool thing that you've done. Yeah, well, like I was lucky enough to get some leftover um, um, Touchstones books, uh, you know, for not much money. So that allowed me to sort of value add a little bit. Um, it's still a lot of these things I'm doing um, with Two Tribes. I had no idea how the um the ledger would look you know financially with a lot of these things and i sort of it was kind of suck it and see a little bit and you know it is it is good value um it's still not i'm not running at a loss but when i it was just guesswork when i set it up because i'd never worked with ingram spark before i didn't really know how much it would cost to print a book because i didn't know how many pages it'd be even if i did know the cost per page i didn't know how many pages the book would run to uh so so, yeah, so when I started it, I just kind of picked an arbitrary figure, um, which is 45 US dollars uh, for everything. And I think initially I actually said postage not included. And then in the end, it just became too complicated to so postage is included. Uh, but certainly the books that people get via Substack, I don't make much money yeah. on. <laughs> is that kind of <laughs> a reflection of, <laughs> of the state of the industry now, both in terms of journalism and in terms of publishing? I don't know. I think he, I learned from Ingram Spark uh, via um, Rob Bergen, uh, who the listeners will, might be aware of, involved in Latin Heat. And as Robert Rackow was was at Rugby League Week for many years, worked for Queensland Rugby League. He's done everything. He's a bit of a hero, actually. And and he um, he told me that you can you know do this, put the self publish on Ingram Spark, and it and it, and you have complete control. 
Um, it, it's, it, is, it, is, it isn't prohibitive even to print one book at a time. Um, and I had another friend uh, called Dennis Gray who does the Australian Rock Show. Uh, he's based in Canberra. He's a big old Raiders fan. And he, he always wanted to write some children's fiction. And he wrote some children's fiction and sent me one of the books from England. He got it printed in England, just one book, and had it sent to me and said it was very inexpensive. So I went, well, you know, rather than waiting around for someone um, to get interested from the uh, mainstream publisher, I'll just do this. And, and you know, um, Nigel Wood uh, was the one who pushed me to do something like this to start with. And he gave me uh, an advance and I have to repay that advance. And he has a, a stake in the book after that as well. So um, it just said, yeah, it, um, I don't think it's, I think it's a good model. I don't think it's desperate. I just think that a lot of it was guesswork. I, until I got a report from Amazon, uh, just like yesterday, Amazon in Australia, I had no idea the impact of, you know, how much the, the um, discount you've got to give retailers or you, it's recommended you give retailers uh, against the cost of printing the books and how much that leaves you with. So I didn't know until I got my first uh, statement from Ingram Spark, and I'm gonna I'm gonna decrease the discount that I give retailers because because I'm left with very little. Uh, so, but it's all suck it and see, and it's exciting. And this morning I woke up and saw that it was number one on all books about ball sports on Amazon Australia, which is a chart it hasn't topped uh, before. Uh, it's obviously number one in rugby league. It's number four in UK rugby league on Amazon, but but it's actually number one because the three books ahead of it aren't rugby league books; they're rugby union books or sports group books. So I've been yeah, very that, happy with awesome. how it's gone and, so and far. Congrats on on getting it out after what what must have been a, a really long process and a lot of work. You can tell has gone into it. I, I want to ask what what was the spark for deciding this would be your second book and. And, you know, when did you start thinking along those lines? It's funny. I was, I was listening to uh, Dennis Gray did an interview with a guy who wrote a book about ACDC. Um, and uh, he said, what made you want to write a book about um, Malcolm Young? And he said, well, it's my living. I write books. <laughs> Someone asked me to. And, uh, um, you know, um, and in this case for me, it was Nigel Wood coming up to me at the very first ever Toronto Wolfpack game in Brickhouse and saying, uh, you know, having a bit of banter because he always kind of feels like hard done by and poorly and he feels like the media is always uh, down on him uh, and fans down on him. And so he had a little bit of that sort of uh, self-loathing banter. And then, um, and then he said, you should, uh, do, um, you, should do a, you should do a follow-up to Mike Coleman's book, you know. Um, um, Nigel actually don't – Nigel has a program in his collection for the 1907 All Goals. Uh, so even though there's a public perception, I think, of Nigel as being an accountant who who kind of got, you know, took rugby league or made a lot out of rugby league, you know what I mean? It, um, did a good job of, of of being rewarded for his efforts when he left. He actually is a super enthusiast for the game and he's a massive collector and he donated thousands of programs to um, to to an archive up in Bradford, the um whichever one it is and he's held on to the programs he doesn't trust them to curate properly he showed me a uh you know h h messenger program from 1907 so he is like a real historian um and 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 he wanted the book to be to bring coleman's book completely up to date which as a reader and as, as someone who i guess is an official in the game it's a kind of you can understand why you would think that and why you would want that but coleman's book only covered 14 months and I soon discovered that I wanted to write a book that only covered the next 14 months. And so uh, there was a bit of 
a bit of pushback from Nigel about that and about the original concept. And But in the end, I, I think he's happy with it. And I think those uh, uh, little chart positions, be that as it may, it's kind of like topping a music chart these days. It's not like it was in the 80s. Uh, but um, it's still uh, it's still good to – I think he's happy with that so far. He's happy but with it. It's funny you mentioned the so Colin far. book, which was obviously very formative for our first season. And then you have Roy's book, which covers a, a bit like – a bit in, more into 1996, but then basically nothing. And and for us, that was like one of the real starting points for us is like this was such a monumental moment in, in rugby league and there's just been so little coverage of it and it just it just gets buried in, in mainstream rugby league shows and, and journalism. And it, for, for Andy and I, it was, it was just really confusing that there hadn't been more done about it, and I wonder if you have any thoughts on on why that is, or any insight to. Sure, everything rugby league does, and everything the mainstream rugby league media does in Australia, particularly, is motivated by money and ratings, and um, and and the Super League uh, uh, year rates poorly. People don't like it; they don't like talking about it. Um, I, I spoke to when I spoke to Neil Whitaker, he said it was his first rugby league interview in twenty years. I don't know if that's true, but. Um, he said uh, He said that you're the first person to ask me about the Super League War. People want to forget about it. They don't want to know about it. No one asked me about it, ever. You know, they asked me about South being kicked out, and he was kind of – he was ready for questions about South. And when I didn't ask South questions, he brought it up himself, you know. Um, I also – and I, the name escapes me, but Roy Masters put me in uh, contact with a, um, a documentary uh, maker who did a thing called the Super League War, and you can see the trailer for it on, um, on Vimeo and – uh, and he gave me some outtakes, which I quoted from in the book. And he couldn't get funding for it. He couldn't get any money for it. He paid Roy out of his own pocket to do voiceovers, um, and um, and 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 just went no further. Um, and and that's because rugby league is a product. And basically, um, you know, this is the uh, this is an airline trying to sell tickets, and it doesn't want to remind people of the year it had plenty of crashes. You know what I mean? It's a it's a it's a, a it's a it's a can of baked beans in the supermarket um, that doesn't want to remind people of the year it was tainted and they had to be sent back to the factory. You know, um, rugby league is a is a commercial endeavour, and this is an uncomfortable truth. And the and the people who uh, who show rugby league on TV um, don't want to make their audience feel bad. Um, you know, you you watch even the hardest hitting current affairs show. You know, they won't show extreme suffering. You know, because they because it makes the audience feel bad. It makes the audience turn off. Um, so I've got a you know very clear idea as to why uh, we don't uh, read or hear about um, these three seasons, but particularly '97. Uh, yeah, it's, it's sad, and I, I don't know. Maybe to me, it seems it's also the small market thing as well. If you, if you look at America, for instance, all of their major sports are, are national; they cover the whole country. And there's enough of an audience that you can get these 30 for 30s and all these other historical programs. But I, I don't know. To me, it seems there should be a market for good historical content from Australian rugby league. Look, rugby league is like, rugby league is not all of New South Wales and Queensland demographically and class wise. And I always tell people the story about you know the team that which team finished last and won the premiership in the same year in Australian sport. And it was one of the um, BFL teams, uh, might have been Footscray, where um, basically all the Irish Catholic uh, um, uh, suburbs of Melbourne kept playing Australian rules 
in the First World War and all the Anglo suburbs stopped. So the team that finished last also made the semis and won the competition. And that neatly sums up what AFL is in Melbourne and what rugby league is in uh, Sydney. Uh, rugby league is not all of uh, Sydney and, and rugby league sells mixed drinks and um, hardware to Western Sydney. And that's what it is. It's a billboard pointed at Western Sydney and the people who run those media outlets who are selling things to those people, they don't think they're interested in that, in that sort of thing, you know? And I guess there's a, there's a cultural, uh, there's a slow cultural change and, you know, your podcast is clearly part of it because it's enormously uh, popular and maybe this book can be part of it. And, um, but I, I always was more interested in those things that, um, the um, rights holders didn't think the audience was interested in. Um, so I think I think sort of sociologically, you can come up with a kind of hypothesis as to why it's been under underreported. I, and I want to turn to the the events themselves, and and I know your book covers 1997, but I'm really interested in your experiences being there, you know, from the start of the war onwards. So when did you first hear about Super League? Well, I was actually on a shark podcast yesterday and I, you know, I know it sounds sort of uh, pretentious. I know if I interview a musician and he said, as I was saying to someone before I spoke to you, but, um, but, but they asked me about, you know, we we're talking about my friendship with Shane Richardson and stuff like that. And we also talked about people making decisions back then, which they have to reflect on for the rest of their lives. And I, because I was very close to Shane Richardson, I knew him, he and John Lang were coming to Sydney um, uh, before long before months before it was ever announced and I just never thought that I would I, it didn't occur to me that um, I would break that confidence it just it never occurred to me I also knew there was something going on with news and and we you know there was obviously originally it was public knowledge that you know that um, Kerry Packer had threatened to sue the pants up everybody and and Ken Cowley had said it will go through the front door you know if we come back as your listeners are all too aware after that, I knew by Shane, my friendship with Shane, that there was something going on and that news was still sniffing around. So I guess I kind of, um, so, I, but I never wrote it. And, you know, um, and, and it might be to my eternal damnation as a reporter, but I just, no one else told me. It wasn't like it was around and I, I could just say I got it from multiple sources. I only knew it from that one source. And I knew that I couldn't breach that confidence just the same as I hadn't breached it when Shane and Lange came to Sydney. Um, so, so I, and then, and then I just, I guess I knew about it when everyone else knew about it. I, uh, I, I yeah, I knew about it when everyone else knew about it. I kind of knew that there was stuff going on with Cronulla when they were in Perth, uh, you know, they're signing, signing up. And I, um, and then I just followed the uh, train all the way through. I just followed it every day, I guess, right up to, um, I, I, but the thing is I was always away in the off season. So, so I, after um, Super League, one in October, I took time off. I went to New Zealand and followed Great Britain around and stayed in backpacker joints. Um, and you know, when the NRL was formed, I was God knows where, Sunset Strip. So I don't know. I wasn't. I wasn't anywhere near the Sydney cricket ground. I was. I was on holidays. But aside from that, I you know, I I, I just I, I guess I followed it every day. Um, but I was always because my training was at AAP. I was always more. I was more about quotes. I was more about pinning people down and getting them to say something on the record. And, and I was, and I was always about getting a quote in the third paragraph. So I wasn't so much to me because of my training at AAP, maybe lack of courage as well. Just didn't want people bagging me. Um, I didn't, I, I, I wasn't one to write an entire unsourced story 
about what I'd heard. You know what I mean? And um, and plus I was young, so I'm I'm not sure the Sydney Morning Herald would want to hold up the whole back page on what some bloke they just got off AAP thought was going to happen. You know what I mean? So, um, but my recollections, if you, you know, I guess when we talk about that and whether my decisions were good or bad at the time and um, uh, you're better off asking the people I worked with, they'd be better more impartial yeah. uh, it's, it's interesting to hear someone say that the first they heard of super league was april falls and it, and it being legitimate so that that's really interesting well yeah um it isn't that but that's not 100 percent true you know because i did know that there that news was still sniffing around and um you know um so that's not 100 percent true but if i i if I could if I could have stood it up, I would have written it, but I only knew about it from one source and it was kind of shady and um and and there was obviously that whole thing where news were leaking stuff to Fairfax because they wanted to get the big end of town and it we're not on video, we're on audio, but I'm doing the quotation marks in the air with my fingers. Um, you know, the big end of town and you know, Alex Mitchell I think was over in this part of the world, he was in the UK and he was getting tip offs about what was happening with Super League. Uh, because they they wanted it to be a kind of um, a non-partisan phenomenon. You know, they didn't want it to just be a, um, you know, a, a news limited and kind of thing. When something like this happens, so, you know, April Fool happens and everything explodes. As a journalist, are you more concerned about, you know, what's happening to the game that you love and the game that, you know, pays your way? Or are you just thinking, wow, this is really good news. This is This is a big story. You know, I've, I've got to get you know, some quotes and, and all that sort of thing. Well, I never thought the game paid my way um, because I think you can only do journalism if you if you believe that you can go and cover something else tomorrow um, because um, if you think the game is paying your way, you don't work for the reader. You know, you, you're biased. You, you might as well be a crooked referee. Um, so I was always excited about it as a story. I thought it was a fantastic story um, and I love the fact that um, people that I already had a relationship were on different sides and they suddenly had positions of seniority, someone like Trevor McEwen or Rebecca Wilson or, you know, these sort of people were suddenly, they were suddenly administrators, you know, and, um, I, you know, I always got on well with, you know, Graham Annesley. I didn't know David Gallup, uh, Bill Harrigan, you know. Um, and so I was, uh, I thought it was a fantastic story. And as a rugby league uh, fan, and I think you can, well, you should always, you should take what, is good out of your fandom for your round, you know? And I always say you don't need to be a mass murderer to be a police roundsman, and the same thing applies to rugby league. But my fandom meant that I was really excited that there were two of everything, you know? There was two New South Wales teams, two Australian teams, uh, you know, four extra games a week, uh, two teams in Newcastle. Uh, So to me, I always loved the ritual of going off to cover games. The further away, the better. And that, that was a kind of little... Um, illusion or routine or fantasy that maintained my enthusiasm in my job. So, so even though I even though I was serious about sort of impartiality and, and all that sort of stuff, I was always happy to draw on the the colourful things that kept me keen to work hard. Uh, and 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 all and all of the all of the things in Super League, almost all of the things in Super League, uh, to me were more colourful, more interesting, more glamorous. And therefore, they made me keener to work hard. But I also 
it also meant that I was keen on covering things that no one else wanted to cover. My favourite game from the year was Hunter Mariners versus uh, Paris Saint-Germain because to me that was really glamorous and, and fun. And to people who were just kind of dyed-in-the-wall traditional rugby league fans, all those journalists who who just were cynical, more cynical people than me, to them it was the worst part of the year. And to me it was the best part of the year. I was, I, I was enthusiastic about it, you know. And, and even in writing the book, I'm enthusiastic about the story. Someone put up a book a story today about uh, uh, they took a picture of the a page about um, you know the Aussie players being in the dressing room at the cricket in '97 at Headingley, and um, and and Luke Devico being asked to repeatedly hit um, a Jason Croker across the forehead with a cricket bat that had just been used in a Test match, and Shane Warne holding um, uh, Jason Croker's false tooth while everyone watched this happen. That's it's hilarious. It's such a great story, and I always. And so I, my, I, got, I was positive about the year, 1997. Nothing about it depressed me. I mean, I could see what depressed me was the way people were behaving and the way it depressed other people. But to me, the year was fantastic. There was more of everything. There was more travel. There was more, it was more everything. It was fantastic. I, I actually, and, and I, I was enthusiastic about the year and I smile when I think about 1997 from a personal point of view. And the more I get asked about it, I think about more stories. I I thought about. I remembered Paul Tagliabue going to um, um, Shark Park for a game. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the commissioner of the NFL. I remember that yesterday, just because someone asked me to to talk about it. The other day, I remembered I froze on air at a Penrith game. Uh, it was one of the first times I ever worked for Ray Hadley, and I was horrified. I was I was distraught for weeks afterwards. That happened in in 1997. Um, so I was hyper aware every day in '97. Because I was into everything, super, super into everything. And I personally, to this day, miss the Adelaide Rams and I miss Paris Saint-Germain. So that was my favourite. It's my favourite. I've got to say, 1997, I never said this in the book and I haven't said this to anyone else. Wow. 1997 is my favourite season. I, I, loved, I loved everything about it. I just didn't like the way everyone else hated it and everyone else was depressed. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think anyone who's read Touchstones and, and knows about your crazy schedules and being in three states or four countries on the same day to watch, you know, five different games. That that kind of makes sense that you'd appreciate that side of things. Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. Was The game was on so many different channels. And, like, I used to – I mean, in 1995, I got friends in Perth to record Reds games and people on the Gold Coast, two of my friends, to record uh, t- uh, Titans games um, and send them to me and post them to me like people in England. Like, so, so for me – to have like you know, um, um, to have the Warriors versus St Helens on the ABC, you know, with Debbie Spillane top and topping and tailing it, it was paradise. We never saw those games before the Super League War. We saw two or three games a week. We always saw the same teams. And I was, um, as I said to someone, I went to the nineteen eighty two Grand. I went to watch the Steelers in their first year play Canterbury at Belmore, and I'm lining up for a hot dog beforehand, and someone goes, "What jersey is that you're wearing?" And I said. It's Illawarra. That's who you're playing today. People didn't even know the strip of teams in the Premiership. I went to the pre- I went to the Grand Final when when Eddie Lumsden came to play for St George from Newcastle. He didn't know St George's strip seriously. He came from Newcastle to St George in the '60s and said well, he didn't even know what jersey they wore. So th- that so to me in 1997 it was so exciting to be able to watch you know Bradford and Paris and you know, and the Hunter Mariners and, and, and all these teams on TV that never got any airplay before, you know. And so 1997 was my favourite season. <laughs> that, that's probably a good place to talk up the much-derided World Club Challenge. And 
we're going to be covering it in detail. Uh, and there are things to, to deride. I'm, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. But one thing that I've found really striking in my research for 1997 is going through each issue of the Super League magazine. And there is, and this is really a comment more than a question, but I'm keen to get your thoughts. But it's it's astounding how much English coverage there was, like far more than any other point in Australian rugby league media. And to me, at least, that is part of the way to, to justifying the World Club Challenge and saying, well, you know, it was lopsided and, and maybe it, it kind of made Super League look a bit foolish, but it, it was probably worth it. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't worth I mean, the thing is, that the, the broader question is that John Rebo will still argue to this day, and Morris Lindsay says New Zealand, Super League won the war because we had all the other countries on side. We just saw at the World Cup, you do not, you could not win a single argument, even a pub argument in Australian rugby league, by saying you've got other overseas countries on board today. So the international game was far more important then, and Quayle and Arfison and Bozo and these guys, they gave it far more credence then than the Australian game um, gives it today. And if and it's not beyond the realms of possibility that at some point in the future the NRL might might divorce itself from the International Federation and they might put together their own Tonga and, and whatever teams. Um, but I, I but I don't think I, I think they do so completely unfeelingly and unthinkingly. Uh, they do it purely from a commercial point of view, and eighty five percent of their fan base would would wouldn't notice. So um, you know the the English game, what Super League. And, and equally, I guess more importantly, if uh, Rupert Murdoch was trying to start a new streaming platform in Australia up against the NRL after losing the TV rights, he wouldn't go and sign up other rugby league playing countries. So the, 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 you're right, that was a peak of um, the credibility being given to the English game. Uh, and I know for a fact that the News Limited reporters... Uh, you know, like Peter Fralingos, were not huge fans of the English game and that um, it was really the vision. Um, it was really Rebo and a small um, group of people um, at the, at the, who, who had News's ear who, who pushed that agenda forward and they were made to look like fools by the results in the World Club Challenge. Um, I, you know, um, I asked, uh, who was it? Um, Ian Robson, you know, who was marketing manager at the time, because there's so many funny stories about the World Club Challenge, hilarious stories. And I asked Ian Robson, who was marketing manager um, at the time, um, hey, got any funny stories for me? I've got this one and that one. He goes, I can't remember anything funny about the World Club Challenge. It's, it was a nightmare trying to sell it to people and convince people that it, was, it, was, it had any uh, credibility. Um, and, um, you know, Ian Schubert said, uh, well, it certainly was a challenge, you know. So, so um, 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 no, no, I don't think. I think it actually was. It was the peak. You're you're right. It was the peak of credibility being given um, to the British game in Australia. But what? But what caused the slide from the peak was the actual matches. So, so you know, I don't think I don't think it justified it. I think it undermined it. You know, it was the matches themselves undermined the concept. Um, and as we know, the fixture wasn't played again until the, until 2000. And as we also know, is not considered very high 
not even considered important enough for Penrith or the NRL to respond to emails in 2022. Yeah, and I guess this is why it was botched in execution, but it was they were onto something in terms of making it kind of a media thing where both seasons were happening at the same time and it was an actual competitive thing rather than a glorified trial. Yeah, um, again, but, I mean, you say a competitive thing. I mean, the Canberra players came to London and just drank all the way, you know, leading up yeah. to their game. I mean, the hardest, the uh, Kevin Walters told me that, uh, you know, you could smell the Halifax guys in the scrum. It was like you wanted to get the ball out as quickly as possible. They stunk so much of alcohol. You know, half a dozen players were arrested. People were sent home. You know, and so at the time, probably the game wasn't professional enough. Um, you know, the players had just freshly moved from part-time uh, to full time, but and they just treated it like a mid-season holiday. Both both sides. Um, so, I yeah, I, I don't think I think we've also been up that hill in sport with the peak of Super Rugby, where we were all told to take um, um, these fixtures against teams with no place name, you know, seriously. And what happened due to COVID is we've become more parochial again. We've we've retreated to our enclaves. Uh, and 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 that kind of um, uh, vision, to use the word for the first time in this interview, um, that vision is on a downswing now generally in the way people consume sport. Um, we're back to being our own backyards, parochial, blah, blah, blah. Um, and the World Club Challenge is, is a predictable barometer of how outward-looking our sport is. If we're in a period of, of uh, optimism and adventure, we tend to play it. And, and if it's not played, it tends to be an indication that we've become, uh, uh, you know, um, inward-looking again. Back to the rest of Super League. Uh, you mentioned you, you loved it. It's your favourite year. You loved all the travel. Did you think much at the time or have you had a chance to reflect on the actual execution of Super League and whether there was a different way to win more hearts and minds? Yeah, I, I guess I have, but I, I think a lot of people who were involved in Super League, the Trevor McEwens and Ian Robsons, um, now say, and you know, people who worked at Canberra, Bevan Hannon, you know, um, you know, say that um, it it lacked authenticity, and that authenticity is granted by the audience. It's not, it's not, it's not created by. Um, it's not created by the, the clubs or the, the league or, or the players or, uh, and, and, and then that in turn um, speaks to what rugby league is and what it isn't, you know? So, so what we did is we learned what rugby league isn't and it's not um, a glitzy, easily transferable product that can be franchised and, uh, be successful purely as an entertainment uh, form. Um, now, you can say there are, were examples of that, uh, like like Adelaide drew good crowds, Perth drew good crowds, London Broncos went quite well, Paris kicked off in front of 16,000 people, Sheffield won at Wembley. Um, but um, uh, but the core uh, the core what doesn't support won't support the outposts. The core is completely blue collar and desperate for money desperate desperately poor and and blue collar and so um 
I don't think Super League, I think Super League could have been executed. Wayne Bennett basically said in, in the book, there's a whole chapter devoted to Wayne Bennett. I left him off the back cover in the first edition. Whoops. But um, Wayne Bennett um, said, we lost it when we didn't get Newcastle. That's that's what he said. So basically, and that's the story of two tribes. That's the story of 1997, the importance of Newcastle and how one community and one group of players unwittingly became the 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 um the the torchbearers uh for the entire spirit of a sport and for a hundred years of history and 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 of and of um many communities who who'd lost interest and how happenstance um allowed th- them to get to the finish line you know that, that those torchbearers didn't look like they were even going to get in a stadium let alone run around once around the oval once around the track and and cross the finish line um, but due to a whole heap of um, um, really intriguing once-in-a-lifetime circumstances, they actually found themselves crossing the finish line first. And as a result, the game um, bounced back much more quickly than it otherwise would have. So in answer to your question, um, I would say that um, um, Super, uh, I would say that Super League could have executed things better if they'd just basically gone after the same people the ARL did. You know, just suburban people in Sydney and, and, and not even bothered with Perth or Adelaide. But see, that that was all that was left for them, right? They had to go for those things because the new clubs on board were had no loyalty to Phillips Street um, and, um, and they were easier to pick off than, than the Parramatta's and the Manlings and the Roosters and blah, blah, blah. So they had to go for what their opposition didn't have. And... That's rugby league's place in the mar- in the in the rugby marketplace. Rugby league's place in the mar- in the sports marketplace is to go for the working class people, the people who live week to week, because the other rugby's got everyone else. And you know, you might say Super League failed to capture the wider imagination because it had to take the part of the market that was left by its major competitor. And you could say equally that rugby league over 126 years has failed to get get the imagination of the wider marketplace because it has to live off the people that are left. Um, and, and so it tells, it tells, it, it, you know, the more we talk about it, um, the more we can hypothesize as to the reasons things have happened uh, over the last 126 uh, years for rugby league, 127 now. And more importantly, the more reasons we can come up with um, for why things haven't happened for rugby league. Well, that, leads to the other side of that equation, which is the fallacy of tribalism, which I, I hated I hated any mention of that in, in our, you know, coverage of the war because, yes, there's an element of truth to it, but what Andy and I always come back to is where were the tribes? You know, it was these, you know, supposedly diehard fans from various pockets of Sydney and 5,000 of them were turning up to games. So I don't I don't know how you square it with Super League being too glitzy and being seen as artificial, but there being like a, a genuine need for something to change with how rugby league was being presented. So what was the answer? Yeah, um, but those five thousand people, along with forty thousand in Brisbane, um, are all the game had, and they didn't want to share it, and to an extent, they're still all the game has. They're still worth selling mixed drinks and 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 hardware to, and that's why, and that's why Fox and Channel Nine keep the lights on at uh, League Central every day, 
Um, and that's why League Central is willing to bend over for those organisations uh, and shut down their own digital unit um, to keep the lights coming on. And, and, and so, and, and the other people, uh, the new people, they're too transient. So the people, you know, per, uh, Paris's crowds went from 16,000 uh, to 4,000 in the course of uh, a, a year. If, if, um, if the Murray Hurst uh, era at Melbourne Storm um, had it continued, or the Mark Murray era at Melbourne Storm uh, had it continued, then they might also be be a footnote in history now. Um, so, so unfortunately, rugby league sometimes, maybe once a generation, tries to take off the sort of down pit uh, um, uh, training wheels, and the and the and the and the bike ends up careering into the hedgerow every single time. Um, so, um, you know, and, and now we live in the hedgerow, you know, that's where we live. And, 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 and so a visionary will come along and try to, and try to put us, take the training wheels off again with the help of a, a billionaire um, every generation or so. And maybe one will get it right. Maybe some will, 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 we won't need the training wheels eventually, but at the moment, that's where we live. We, we, we live where we just crashed off the road 25 years ago. And you hear a lot of talk along those lines, which I can understand. The online NRL Twitter, in particular, is is a very negative place, and no decision by an administrator or no article from you know the telly or Fox can come out without being met with you know a a barrage of of criticism, and much of that is justified. But I'm kind of like, well. Don't at a certain point don't we need to embrace the fact that this is what the game is for all its faults and and we can criticize the faults but this is kind of what it's always been. Yeah, I, but I'm enthusiastic. I'm going to uh, Bridge End on the way home to watch a first round Challenge Cup game between two amateur teams. It'll be cold and wet, and uh, it'll be my first game of the year. And you know, um, but, the, but you can like what you have and still want it to be better. Um, if I if I hear a record that I really like, my favourite album of the last two years, I can guarantee you, you haven't heard and none of the listeners have. And it's okay to to tweet about it every day and want people to um, to to know it's good, you know. And and uh, but but equally, when it's when you're involved, I'm, I don't I haven't worked in the music industry for twenty five years, so I haven't seen the mistakes bands have made trying to reach a wider audience over and over again. So I can be naive like that and go. You know, and I am like I, you know, I, I, I do send people emails and say oh, I'd like to help. You know, I'd like to help the Angels get some sh- shows in England. Um, I don't have know the first thing about booking shows, so 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 it's so that's great, you know. But if I had worked in that industry for twenty five years and I had seen people try to do that and I'd seen the mistakes they'd made, it would be wrong of me and stupid of me and brain dead of me not to point out that that was tried five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, and it didn't work. And here's why I uh, think it didn't work. And if that's being negative, it's being negative, but it's also speaking the truth as I know it to be. Um, it is, I, I am sitting here saying on a rugby league show that rugby league is, you know, basically commercially there to sell things to working class people and people only get involved uh, commercially uh, or you know, or, or in a partnership as a broadcaster because they want to reach working class people. They are not trying to reach the listeners to this show. 
when when Fox give Peter Volandis uh, several million dollars. We are not the target. It's not we're guests in their midst. We are kind of just just annoyances. Um, the machine of rugby league is not built for us. So um, and and I and I feel completely uh, comfortable pointing that out at every opportunity. Is this something you've a sentiment that you've developed over time or say in 1997 were you aware that this this is the game we're in no i wasn't aware no and i developed this attitude more um um writing this book you know just it just crystallized in my mind i had to write a chapter called quote peace unquote with my impressions and as i wrote it i thought more and as i answering these questions i i think more about things that i've spent my life thinking about and um what Super League was, was um, it gave the dreamers, the visionaries, the people maybe like you, maybe like many of the listeners, a fairy godfather. Someone came along and said, and it's like if anyone in, in your business, if you pitched an idea to someone, um, you pitch your, because you want them to invest in your idea, you maybe you don't go as far as that Holmes girl who's just been sent to jail, but you pitch... Um, your idea of reality to someone because you and and they give you money okay they give you money if they believe in your idea of reality um and they might do diligence due diligence or they might not or they may not do much well rupert murdoch wanted to get his pay tv uh into people's homes right so he and and john rebo ran the most successful club in the uh sydney premiership and was unhappy and was disillusioned so I think Rupert Murdoch was pretty predisposed to listening to and believing anything John Rebo told him. And even though Super, even though Super League, even though News Limited had some success in that they got rugby league on TV, listening to the dreamers and the visionaries didn't work for Rupert Murdoch, right? It didn't work. So people go, well, that's rugby league. That doesn't work in rugby league. Same as... If I try to put on an international, well, if I'm Jason Moore, okay, let's say I want to put on a rugby league international in America on an origin weekend. I look to what happened to that weekend, what happened to Jason Moore, and I don't get involved in rugby league. So what it shows is that rugby league is not a sport for entrepreneurs, okay? And what Super League showed is that rugby league is not a sport for internationalists or, or people who, uh, who, who, who target a higher demographic or uh, people who, uh, you know, uh, want to reach um, someone other than the sort of average suburban person in Sydney and Brisbane. That is what Super League taught the marketplace, that it, it's not for those people. It's a sport if you want to reach the people it's always uh, been attached to. It's not a sport if you want to reach others. It's interesting thinking about Rebo in particular and how much, this is my assessment, you've interviewed him, you'd be able to speak on this more than me, but my assessment is he 1,000% believed in the vision. For him, it wasn't just pay TV subscriptions. He thought this was the way. Do you, do you agree with that assessment of 100%. And John, I spoke to John three times for this book. Long, Most time I spent on the phone to anybody. Um, and... Um, he still speaks about um, Mandarin commentators and, uh, you know, people wearing uniforms and smiling when they show people to their seats and all those things. He wanted rugby league to be better. He, he probably, even though some of, 
you and some of your listeners may dislike John Rebo, um, he actually probably has more in common with you than you would care to admit. Um, so John Rebo and John Rebo ended up going to Melbourne and he negotiated the realities that the Super League war taught us and he still achieved something great. The only true expansion club in rugby league history that succeeded. And, I, and Auckland's not an expansion club um, because it's already played rugby league there. I mean, and every other team, South Wales, London's in the second division, Paris, um, Adelaide, uh, Perth, every other true expansion team in full-time professional rugby league since 1895 has failed. John Rebo, the guy who got Rupert's attention uh, through his, his, his vision for the sport, ended up with that enduring success. And it will always be, you know, on his, on, you know, it'll always be on his record and part of his legacy. So that's a long answer to your question, mate, but the answer is yes. Yeah, no, no, no. And uh, yeah, we definitely very much admire Rebo's passion. I I think he made a number of mistakes along the way, but I, I think he was very genuine in his motivations. But when I think of Rebo and that, the vision again, and think about it in terms of what you were saying about the the commercial motivations for it. I think about the fact that the ARL were were kind of halfway there. They were bringing in the new clubs, but it was just so Sydney centric. They just couldn't make the clean break they needed to. It was all about rationalization was always three years down the track. And I wonder if you had you had Rebo, you had the ARL going in a new direction, whether it could have worked if it was like an internally motivated concept rather than having this pay TV. It was. It was internally motivated because Quayle and Arfison's concept, and, you know, and maybe they never said this publicly, but I was there on the hill on the first day of the 95 season overlooking Perth, uh, and and their concept was that um, no team would be propped up, right? Teams wouldn't be propped up. So... I was thinking about this yesterday. Um, if it had been survival of the fittest, we would have lost as many. We would have been down to 14 teams by the turn of the century anyway. Um, Souths, West, Balmain, Illawarra, would have, they wouldn't have made it to the turn of the century. St George already talking to the Roosters about merging. Perth were already broke that morning. They hadn't played a game. Yeah. Already yeah. broke that morning. Um the crushers, their management of their finances um, was shown to be not great. Um, um, they were asking players to take pay cuts, uh, even with the Optus money coming in. Now, I appreciate the Optus money was going to players, not to the clubs, but you would suggest the crushers were maybe would have ended up a failed experiment just on financial grounds. So by the turn of the century, you would have been uh, down to your, um, um, your 14 clubs anyway, you would say. And unfortunately... Um, what, you still would have ended up with too many teams in Sydney, but the same too many teams as we have today. So, so I think you're 100% right there, that if, if, if Rupert had have decided to jump to rugby union or if... And, you know, we, we can't forget that this bit of war, you know, Rupert Murdoch and Kerry Packer met on a, a boat in the Bay of Islands. They met in London and they, and they were able to make the whole thing go away very quickly. Then we... A key element of this story is old school honourable men being honourable. So, Quayle and Arfison and a lot of the club, they were like, we've got a contract with Kerry Packer for pay TV 
He doesn't have any pay TV station, but we've got a contract and our word is our honour and blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, Whereas the modern approach to these sort of things in business is that contracts just add a zero to the end of a settlement or seven zeros to the end of a settlement. Um, And if that attitude had been applied by more people, then you would imagine that um, because, let's remember, Kerry Packer didn't have pay TV outlet and he obviously bequeathed or gave the rights to, to Optus. Um, then we would have had that, uh, probably had that, um, 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 that attrition that was planned anyway. And it would have been perhaps a stage managed attrition with the business now of news and the, and the kind of um, model of the Broncos coming to the fore. Um, but we had honorable men who were determined to be honorable. Um, and so they protected a contract which actually meant less to their partner, their partner than it meant to them. And, and so that's how we had the Super League War. That's been a reoccurring theme of our series that rugby league is driven by and held back by rugby league men in equal measure. Like the mm-hmm. game doesn't exist without them, but it can't advance without them. And, and so maybe that goes to what you were saying earlier about how we're in the position we are. Yeah, and, and what's more, they scare away non-rugby league men all the time by being rugby league men. So, you know, every time every time an outsider comes in and wants to sort of commercialise things, um, they get frozen out. You know, they get, you know what I mean? Like, um, so, I mean, I can't blame, you know, there's so many, you know, decisions made at the time by everyone who was working in the game every day that you could go back and say, what if I'd done it differently? What if I broke my you know, trust with Shane Richardson and wrote a speculative piece at Super League's back on. What if, um, you know, I had a, you know, 96 at the preliminary final when Cronulla played Manly. I was telling the story yesterday, Jacqueline Magne was off with Manly because she'd written some stories that Bose I didn't like. And the players in the dressing room were singing after David Peachy dropped the ball three times, millions of, you know, the President of the United States of America, millions of peaches, peaches for me. And I wouldn't dream of writing that. I went back to the office and told people in the office and she put it in the paper the next day, you know. So you've got this kind of, in this small microcosm of these competing narratives where I was like, I should be able to trust other people in the office to say things without it being in the paper. And and, and her going, the readers deserve to know this. It was It's a part of rugby league history. And they were singing in front of journalists and, it's and that's their risk. You should have written it. You know what I mean. And so, and and um, the Steelers saying, well, you know, we were loaned a million um, dollars, uh, to, more than that, whatever it was, to build the Steelers club. How could we desert the ARL when they gave us an interest-free loan to build our club? We can't do that. It's not honourable. And yet, um, you know, but you've got people like Peter Moore and Roger Cowan, I guess, who were like, look, Ma, I'm here to protect the club and make sure it survives in the future, and everything else is secondary. You know what I mean? And, and I'll make whatever decisions are necessary so that this club survives, you know, into the future. Peter Gow, you know. And, and so these are essential um, moral dilemmas that we all face in life. Um, and, 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 and they are the stories of this period. Uh, we, had a, we, had a, we had a landscape that was the same for 100 years and then we had uh, tectonic plates moved very quickly over three years and now we are left with a completely different landscape because of those tremors that only only over three years and that and and that landscape has proven to be just as unchanging in in the 25 years since i i i want to ask how different that landscape is because from a a viewer perspective or a fan perspective 
it took a long time to to get all the fans back and some haven't come back but for those who stayed it was it was kind of like this you know tumultuous period and then it's like okay round one 1998 we're all back together cool rugby league's back and and you know didn't think about it any more than that and and now we're left with still many sydney teams arguably too many sydney teams and how much has actually changed well i think one thing that's changed is in, in 1995 we didn't understand the importance of ip okay so we were like going our thought was like too many teams in London, uh, let's move Arsenal to uh, Rotherham. You know what I mean? That was because that was our, we looked at the American model and we saw it as inevitable. And I was one of those people. I was like Americanization of the Australian Rugby League and of all Australian professional sports is inevitable. And that's why we had Sydney Bulldogs, Sydney Tigers, Sydney City uh, Roosters. Um, and, and, and what the Super League War did is it put a kind of um, – I've been big on metaphors this morning. I think I've been good with them. Uh, it put a, the wind of change blowing at the door. It put a doorstop under the door. So, so and, and, and when the doorstop was in the door, the direction of the wind changed. So now we understand that Balmain um, can be in a small catchment area and it can be basket weavers and baristas – but because of nostalgia and social media and marketing and merchandising and, and, and um, uh, community memory, um, that Balmain could conceivably be a successful uh, business um, without having any more people go through the gate. And because, all, because, and because we now have more than the entire wages bill of every club paid for in TV rights. So what's changed is very much that, we now understand IP. We understand the value of your dad and your granddad and his granddad having followed the same club and you following the same club. And, and, and so um, the Americanization, the inevitability of Americanization of Australian rugby league is gone. It's completely gone. It is possible that you, we can have eight and a half teams in Sydney for the foreseeable future and various other factors can compensate for their weaknesses. Um, so that is the biggest change, I think, our biggest change um, uh, now that we don't necessarily think, you know, the sport doesn't think it needs a national footprint anymore. It, it, it looks at itself purely through dollars and cents if it can pay its bills. If the, if, if the television money's on the table, then we don't need to move teams around like they're on a chessboard. One thing I'm struggling with for our series is working towards a clear resolution of the story. So everyone always talks about Super League War making for a great scripted drama. But one of the challenges of that, in my opinion, is the narrative arc. So there's no satisfying climax. There's no protagonist or antagonist that's there from start to finish. The heart of the drama is 1995, and then the Super League season isn't for two years after that. And the resolution is is messy with not a lot fundamentally changing. So what do you think about that? And how did you approach that challenge for the book? Um, it's very easy, right? Um, and I, in the first line of the book, um, um, I, I, the first couple of lines, I, I, I say that if it, were, if it was a, um, listen to the wanker quoting himself, but, you know, say that um, in the, um, if this was a, a, a movie, it would need symbolism. And the symbolism would be um, 
a faceless functionary of BHP getting up and saying we're closing the steelworks at the loss of 4,500 jobs and a rock going through the window of the Hunter Mariner's office at Birmingham Gardens in Newcastle. That would be the opening scene. And, and, it's, and, and then you put Paul Harrigan at the centre of the story and, and, the, and I guess the story finishes with, um, you know, Paul Harrigan running out for the round one, 1998. Um, and, and then you have a hero and you have good and bad and you, well, you have, you have one hero who can focus good and bad around him. And then you can sort of, you can sort of submerge the nuances a little bit in the story. You can hint at the nuances, but you don't need to really go into them too deeply. So that's the way you tell a story and make it a mass market story in, 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 in very quickly. Yeah. And you, you've got the, the fairy tale ending with Newcastle, which you touched on before, and it's it's very glib. It's a cliche at this point to say that Newcastle saved the ARL in 1995, and in winning the comp the way they did in 1997, they gave the ARL credibility and, and made... I, I don't know if, if it broke a different way. Maybe the Super League season was just so hated anyway that whatever the ARL did would have been viewed as the official season of 1997. But... Newcastle winning the way they did kind of saved the ARL a second time, at least in terms of public perception and the legacy of that year. Yeah, hundred percent. So Newcastle, the ARL when 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 Ian Frickberg and uh, um, Neil Whittaker sat down at a restaurant, which is identified in the book, and we're going to go back there on December eighteen this year. Uh, but you've got to read the book to find out where it is. When they when when they um, Toasted uh, the deal that would be done the next day with a with a port. Um, um, one of them had a lot of money in his back pocket, and the other one had nothing. I mean, Optus Vision were touted at the start of nineteen ninety seven as having committed until the turn of the century one hundred twenty million dollars. That actually only committed for that year, and it was thirty. You know, so um, so it was only Newcastle's victory that gave. Um, um, Neil Whitaker a cracker to bring to dinner that night. You know, um, I think, um, you know, uh, Ian Frickberg had a Grange Hermitage and, uh, and and Neil Whitaker had a bottle of Night Train, 99 cents, you know, wine for that night at dinner. Um, and so Newcastle, um, New, Newcastle allowed the ARL to credibly claim they brought the public with them to the table. And, Subsequently, we saw that news were willing to subvert their own involvement in 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 the ARL in in the Super League in 1997. The place you will least are least likely to hear about Super League is on Fox, you know, yeah. um, even yeah. though it was part of what got Rugby League on Fox, because it goes back to the nature of Rugby League. Rugby League relies completely and absolutely on the communities that begot it uh, in order to survive from one day to the next. And what, and what Newcastle did is they brought that, the, the last community that cared to the table and gave the ARL some ammunition. Um, and we, but that meant we lost Adelaide, you know. Uh, we lost Gold Coast, uh, um, you know, it, and, and, and uh, it still didn't save St George, Illawarra, Norths, West, Balmain, Manly from merging either. Uh, um, while we still have Canterbury, Penrith and Cronulla. So even... Even that didn't uh, it didn't quite make it even when when the cards fell in 1998. Yeah, and 
I, I always say if you could say that News Limited, you know, ARL won in terms of public perception, but News Limited won on almost any other front. But I always say if you're asking who won the Super League war, you're asking the wrong question. No, well, yeah, I think it's I think it's a good question, but but it depends on what theatre of war you're looking at. It's like if you look at a world war, and you know you know um, I guess you could say you know you know the Russians were on one side and then they're on the other side, and did you know what did they get out of the war? And like if you if you're talking about business, Kerry Packer hardly Kerry Packer told Jeff Cousins to give up. He said, "You can't beat Murdoch. Give up." Jeff Cousins just kept getting money off his. Uh, shareholders to pay ARL players so the ARL could could put up a fight because he needed the content and, and on, on Optus Vision. And so Packer won the business war, um, you know, and, and Roy Masters is goes into this in chapter and verse. He hardly paid for any players and ended up with a bit of Foxtel. Um, you know, and what he did is he propped up Australia. So news were getting all their paying through the nose for their movies from Australis. But, but Astralis was a microwave um, operation for pay TV. And so no one was watching Astralis. Astralis was going broke. So all the Super League wars going on, all this stuff's going on. Astra- and, and so um, Rupert was just waiting for Astralis to go broke. Packer's sitting back. He's not paying any rugby league players. He's showing Super League on Channel 9. And what does he do? He props up Astralis. Make sure they survive so that, so that news are snookered. And that's what, according to Matthew Kidman, the business journalist, that's what ended the Super League war. So Packer won the business war, right? If it's a TV war, if it, as people say, it's about it's all about pay TV, the great cliche, right? Um, well, well, news set out to get rugby league uh, on um, TV, uh, and they got it, right? So from a TV point of view, you know they got rugby league. They paid too much for it. But they got they got rugby league. It's on Fox now. There's no Optus Vision, okay. But from a spiritual rugby league point of view, the ARL were in the Alamo, surrounded for three years, and and yet people came out of the war believing they'd won, despite all those things, you know. So um, so they won by kind of um, um, retreating into their enclave. Uh, um, and marshalling the people who, who were the core rugby league fans, uh, the people who who uh, believed it was a working class property and and should always stay that and believed it belonged to the people, they they exploited that, um, and they won the spiritual battle uh, to the point where the actual winners have been going around denying they won ever since. You know what I mean? Like, like Souths actually, News won on appeal, the right to kick Souths out, but News had to let Souths back in because cab drivers wouldn't go to Fox Studios. So, so um, you know, so, so, so there's three different answers. And probably if you ask another aspect of the war, um, then I'll come up with a different answer. There, there cannot possibly be one answer to that if you think about the subject for more than five minutes. I, I want to finish this interview the way we finished our second season which was uh, a column of yours October 1996 just after the appeal verdict so I'm, I'm just going to read this uh, this this is one of your quotes we are once again close to a pretty good outcome for rugby league a national competition 
The Sydney mergers everyone always thought were necessary, the sort of international media exposure others would kill for, and the backing of a media empire. Admittedly, the death or denigration of traditional sports administration is sad and regrettable, but the law says it's legal. Heavens above, if things developed a certain way over the next couple of months, we might even be able to sit back and look at the torment of the past two years as a necessary evil. Is there a way to argue that at least some of that ultimately came true? Can we take any good from this period? 100%. And I put some quotes from David Gallup because I'm doing the Substack, and I found, and I'm looking for things to put in there some days, and I found some quotes from David Gallup, which absolutely should be, um, should have been in the first print run of the book and are in the second print run of the book. And he said that, um, you know, that a lot of the good things that have happened to rugby league since would not have happened without uh, the Super League war, such as, you know, the proper enforcement of the salary cap, um, you know, the, the um, um, uh, fair and, well, some people say it isn't, but proportional policing of off-field, you know, misbehaviour, um, you know, the fact that the TV rights, even though they were artificially kept down, with, he didn't say this, obviously, but they were artificially kept down uh, with the partnership with news, um, they did actually hit something like um, to the... Uh, they did actually hit something like their market value to the extent where, um, you know, the NRL officials were shunned at a party for Rupert Murdoch. You know what I mean? They actually, so, so, you know, he said, you know, he argues that so many things commercially, as far as the NRL uh, realising its commercial potential and being able to do things like buy touch football uh, and unfortunately launch a, a digital arm which made money until it was shut down. A lot of those things wouldn't have, you know, David Gallup argues, and I have no reason to disagree with him, you know, it wouldn't have happened without the Super League War. If you, you know, so I think the legacy, <clears throat> the legacy of the Super League War are, are mainly in the robustness of the NRL as a business. And, and a lot of those things are the things that upset us, you know, the taking down of videos off YouTube and, you know, all that sort of stuff that we that annoys us, um, not responding to emails from little people, um, you know, um, um, all, all those things. Um but they are the things, whether you like them or not, that we got from the, the NRL became became this big, robust uh, business, and then COVID came along and, and made it shrink again, uh, you know, um, and made it made left it at the um, beck and call of, of the um, broadcasters once more. And I guess I guess now we really sit in that regard where we sat at the end of Mike Coleman's book um, with, you know, um, we don't know where that's going to go, whether the NRL is going to. Re- you know, retreat more within itself and become just, you know, um, a whipping boy of Nine and Fox or whether it's going to regain its autonomy and independence and and become an outward-looking organisation, you know, and buy Super League or, you know, whatever. Uh, we don't know. We're, we're in the middle of the, that book at the moment, you know. Hmm. When I spoke to Tony Collins, he, you know, talking about the woes of the English game, he just kind of offhandedly seem to suggest that these things work in cycles and, and the English game will likely have it go through a, a good patch again. Do you subscribe to that, both in terms of England and the NRL? Do you think it is a cyclical thing? No, because, I mean, the biggest sport in Sydney in 1904, 1905 was rowing. You know what I mean? So, so the actions of people, the technological advances of the high-speed printing press then radio and then TV, they change the course of these cycles. Um, and certainly the introduction of pay television is responsible for all these things we're talking about now. Um, 
So I don't think English rugby, it's a given that English rugby league is going to bounce back to the point where we had, you know, where Martin Fire, Ellery Hanley and Sean Edwards were national celebrities. I don't, I don't see Luke Gale or, you know, any of these people, you know, definitely becoming, you know, people who will be stopped in the street in London because, because of, because rugby league hasn't really, the, the, the thing that made Balmain a more important thing than we imagined in 1995 is what makes the Premier League such a behemoth now because I used to write a story about these things that appeared once a day and now people tweet about them every 30 seconds. So it enshrines what's big and, and it punishes what, is, what isn't. Um, so I, I don't think it's necessarily a cycle. I think the decisions of people um, <clears throat> like, um, you know, Ralph Rimmer and, and uh, Simon Johnson and um, Peter Volandis and uh, <clears throat> Andrew Abdo, Ken Davey, um, Rodri Jones, the people I'm talking about over here, the decisions of those people can have a lasting impact on on it. It isn't it isn't just a just an interminable cycle. I don't think not. Well, probably a mistake to to ask that question to finish because I, I could have predicted your answer, and it's maybe not the most positive note to go out on. <laughs> but I, I this this was a, an amazing chat, Steve. Thanks so much for this and. Uh, anyone who hasn't got it already, please sign up to the the Substack. Even if you don't want to that, do that. Make sure you get a copy of Two Tribes. But uh, it, it's a great achievement, and um, yeah, really appreciate you joining. I'll say I'll say this like um, I will because obviously we're all kind of um, brethren on this on this niche subject. So um, I'm trying to, but but I obviously don't want to lose money. So what I'll do is, and, and you put it in the show notes. If you go to Steve Mascord dot com forward slash product forward slash two tribes in Australia and you put in rugby league digest as your checkout code the book will be 35 bucks not 37.50 but you'll also get a copy of touchstones completely free and that also works in uh, the UK so if you um, if you go to sh- just put shop at the start so shop dot dot com forward slash product forward slash two tribes and you put in Rugby League Digest as your checkout uh, code, um, um, I'll send you both books, not just one. And also you get a discount and it'll be in the UK, it's 18 down to, no, it's 19, 19.99 down to 18. So I'd say if you're in Australia, go to the, or the Southern Hemisphere, go to the Aussie site um, and, and um, you get both books for the less than the price of one. And same in the Northern Hemisphere, just add shop to the start in the Northern Hemisphere. All right, fantastic. Everyone get on top of that. And uh, best of luck with everything, Steve. And, and anytime you want to chat about anything else, please hit us up. Uh, this, this has been a really great conversation. Thank you. No, no worries. And maybe after you've got to grand final day or December 1997, and then you personally allow yourself to read the book, um, you know, maybe we can then uh, revisit um, um, you know, the, the some of the anecdotes yeah. in there. Um, the one thing I will say to listeners in Australia before we leave is that I want to do a bunch of events. Um, when I I want to come back after the World Cup. Um, on December 18, I want to go to that secret restaurant and I'll make a booking for uh, two and it'll go up and up, um, hopefully during the course of the year. And on December 19, I'd like to do something in the vicinity of the Sydney Football Stadium where effectively the NRL was formed. But I also, look, this sounds stupid, but... I'd like to actually do something in every all 22 places that hosted a club in 1997. Um, so I really, um, 
more want to get the support of your audience if I can, not in a monetary sense or a material sense, but just to get the word out um, about the book and the fact that um, at the end of the year, you know, wherever you live in, in Australia, that I might be, you know, in the pub on the corner. Um, um, and, and if you get a few of your mates along, you know, I'll appre- I'd appreciate it and, and, and I'll let everyone know, you know, when I make those oh, plans. Brilliant. I'm sure the RLD community will be there in droves. So really looking forward to that. Uh, but I'll, I'll let you go. But thanks so much, Stephen, and best of luck with the book. No, that, that was awesome. And, and congratulations on all, all, all your work you've been doing on this no, subject. Thanks, mate. All right, we'll speak to you next time. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365-day returns.